I'm Alex Ames, and this is Cloister Talk, the Pennsylvania German Material Texts podcast. Welcome to Design History as Cultural History, a conversation about Pennsylvania German design with historian and artist Rachel E. Yoder. In this episode of the podcast, we'll consider how historical research can support artistic practice, and how the work of the artist and craftsperson can inform the questions one asks of the historical source material. This podcast expands on topics covered in my book, The Word in the Wilderness, Popular Piety and the Manuscript Arts in Early Pennsylvania, published by Penn State Press in 2020. To learn more about the book, visit wordandwilderness.com. In the field of Pennsylvania German studies, the investigation of religion and cultural history is closely linked to the study of artistic traditions and material culture. In her new book, Pennsylvania Dutch Design, A History of Kitsch, Folk Art, and More, talented artist Rachel E. Yoder uses design history to showcase the cultural richness of the Pennsylvania Germans, or Pennsylvania Dutch as they are often called, and to encourage a resurgence in a dignified approach to Pennsylvania Dutch aesthetics. I've invited Rachel to appear on Cloister Talk because I'm curious to learn more about how her artistic practice informs her approach to the study of culture. My craft is the writing of history, and I've always admired those who are makers of visual art, so I'm very excited for this discussion. Thank you, Rachel, so much for joining me on Cloister Talk. Hello, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to sit down with you and have this discussion. Tell me a little bit about your family background and early experiences of Pennsylvania German culture and how these early exposures uh, shaped the education that you received. That's a wonderful question. I have to notate to start off, I usually refer to Pennsylvania German as Pennsylvania Dutch or sometimes Deutsch. So if I slip into speaking about Deutsch, it's all part of the umbrella of Pennsylvania German, Pennsylvania Dutch, and Pennsylvanish Deutsch. So it's actually linguistically the way to say Pennsylvania Dutch in Deutsch or Pennsylvania Dutch. So that's stated. Um, this is a really great question because if you had asked me when I started this sort of immersive study and um, creation of Pennsylvania Dutch folk art back in 2011, I started, I would have answered it very, very differently. But now so many years later, 11 years later on my journey, I would say the things that were so subtle in my upbringing have now looking back, ha have now robust colors, and they sort of have this glimmer that I didn't see. Many of us can, I'm sure, also identify with this as we're young people. Things that are within our home, within our traditions as our families sort of just become like background noise. It's just part of what we live with. But when I started this journey in 2011, I, I felt this sense of um, that I was ripped from a sense of self and belonging to my culture here in Pennsylvania. Now, I feel very differently now, having studied it for 11 years and really started to uncover the ways in which my family did make these connections. And I think there's a whole lot to unpack there, and I'll keep it pretty simple for this for this answer, but part of it I do believe is it was so subtle because, and I discuss this in the book, the generations that came before me, being my great-grandparents' generation, um, dealt with a lot of anti, well, even before that as well. Everybody basically that's ever come to Pennsylvania that's part of my ancestry has dealt with anti-German sentiments, anti-German hysteria during World War One, World War II. And, you know, it's so interesting because I think that actually 
that ancestral trauma, I would call it now, having studied psychology as well, parallel to this study, was actually the most impactful part of this entire study and immersion in finding my connection to my culture. So it's really interesting because the trauma stands out for me. But as I started to heal that trauma through like unpacking all of these experiences, those subtle pieces of the puzzle became so much brighter for me. So I think it's really interesting that I'm having this talk with you now in light of the way that I would have answered that had I had this discussion and had many interviews back when I first started this journey. So I used to say that my family was very Americanized, very um, wanted to be part of the melting pot, which then later in my studies, becoming an art teacher, I found learning at Tyler School of Art and Temple University, I had this wonderful professor that described it as, America needs to be a salad bowl, not a melting pot. This is a very common sentiment now um, in more sort of like our generation. And I loved that because I thought, you know, she said, you know, a tomato is a tomato, a cucumber is a cucumber. So, you know, you have a Pennsylvania Dutch person, you have a Welsh person, and then they come together and make this glorious salad that of course makes our mouths very, very happy when they all come together and all these different flavors. If you're someone that cooks, you understand all the different flavors have a place, especially if you're talking about spices. Uh, we're vegan, so I talk about salad a lot. <laughs> but um, this sentiment meant so much to me, but I had sort of like this anger, I guess, or issue with my parents for wanting to be a melting pot. But then as a more informed individual and a more mature individual, when I looked back at what the time was like there and took myself out of the framework of, I was born in 1981, I'm looking at their experience through my lenses, but what was their experience like for their experience in their time and that period and what was going on around them? So that was a breakthrough for me in my immersion and my study of who I am and who my people are and were. And that really just came, honestly, Alex, um, within the last five years or so, all these little snippets that I had pieced together and like sort of not pieced together, but sort of notated in my head, they all kind of came together. And it was pretty, um, pretty profound and exciting to see, oh, all these connections are making a lot more sense to me. So I, I suppose that was a very long answer, but um, lots of cooking, lots of very traditional Deitch cooking, um, you know, all the things that you think of as things you need to live. Uh, so just the frugality of our families, very, very frugal. Um, the crafts, the crafts were instrumental in our family. And I'm speaking mostly about my maternal side and the Pennsylvania Dutch side uh, on that side. Very, 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 very handy. Busy hands, happy heart. My great grandmother, Verna Nab Fisher, always said to my mother, and that's just exactly how I could sum up this answer is, you were always moving your hands, were always doing something. If it was not for work, if it was not for keeping the home well um, and happy and clean, it was taking little bits of quilt remnants and, and creating something out of those rag pieces. You know, every bit was used. And that, of course, comes from, you know, the experience of coming to America and having nothing and maybe even further back when we were in Germany and all the different places that we came from in our family were very mixed up bag. So I think that really stuck with me. And 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 I guess I could also say in lots of discussions with Doug Maidenford, who's another fella um, in our Pennsylvania Dutch community, a leader, we always talk that the most profound like experience of being brought up in a Pennsylvania Dutch family would be the work ethic. So I think that's something 
that my family all had like extremely, extremely committed work ethic, whatever the work was, no matter what it was, whether it was cleaning your house or it was, you know, going off to study somewhere, it was always, there was definitely a level of expectation of, you know, to work hard, but it felt very natural for me. I just needed to find what I wanted to work hard at. So I think those would be some of the answers. Um, So of course the cooking, the crafts, and then the work ethic. And it's very interesting because I didn't connect these things, of course, as a young person. And, but now as an older person, I can look back and see it. And then I continue that, that cycle with my children. So it's a beautiful thing to be able to experience and also um, be able to honor my parents and their parents and so on and so forth. So it's very exciting. What I find so fascinating about what you're saying is that often, you know, even to this day, we're inclined to think of things like ethnicity and community identity as somehow essential in us, that there's, you know, something about, you know, our, our DNA or our, who we are biologically that, that makes us a community. And as you describe it, I mean, you know, culture is really a a set of practices yes. that you sort of personally or as a group opt into and and sometimes opt out of over time. Mm. And, you know, so, you know, maybe your, your, your biological humanity didn't change over that decade long period that you were doing this work. But what did change is a sort of conscious decision to explore a set of practices closely associated with your, with a traditional culture in your family background and it sounds like through doing that, you were able to establish a closer connection to your ancestors and then sort of the, the other people today in the region who identify as part of that community. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's such a great point as well, because as part of my larger work, I, I'm a trained art educator and, you know, just obsessed with the way people um, connect to culture. And and this concept of it not needing to be your culture, I think, is really a profound um, delineation, I think that would be the proper word for that. But it's really important to compartmentalize that is a difference from ethnicity for sure, because very recently I did a DNA test and I was very surprised at what I found. And, And it did kind of shift my perspective a bit. And I thought, well, does it really matter that much at the end of the day? Because if I thought I was mostly Pennsylvania Dutch and I've been going about my day, my daily life feeling this way. And I think to answer my own question, it would it would it would be to say it definitely has a place if it's important and valuable to you. But you know, I often think about my children, for example, um, and and my eldest daughter, her her father, her biological father, is absent. So that part of her ethnicity and culture is is pretty absent. I try and give her experiences, but I can't give it to her the same way that he would be able to. Right. So I often think about that, and and that's going to shape the way she feels about you know all this like exuberant ex- exploration of our cultures that I can put in her face. But there's still that longing, and I think that's just of human nature to have that longing. And perhaps I'm very into like ancestral DNA and um, genetic markers in these sort of traditional things feel really natural if you're if you're maybe part of a community that's practiced this for a long time because it's part of your DNA. I can definitely get into that. But on the other side, I can also, as an art teacher, see the perspective of, you know, we always in our in our little culture, you know, people like my, Doug and myself always say everyone's welcome as long as you're respectful. And I think that is to the point of the whole book is there was a period in time where it became disrespectful and it became an appropriation. And, and that's something that I think really 
to look at because I think it's a very American idea, this fragility about making sure that you do things within your own lane. And it's interesting because as I've I've explored different um, practices, especially with with Irish singing, actually, funny enough, um, I'm completely obsessed with this writer, Sharon Blackie, and I found someone named Mary McLaughlin through her who's an Irish singer and a teacher. And I went to her and I said, I'd really like to learn this, but I feel like such a poser because I'm not Irish. And she said, that's okay. It's as long as you come to it with a respect and you're not doing anything wrong, it's okay. And I feel like that's sort of something that Americans tend to like put onto people or put onto themselves is this um, fear of, of taking something that's not theirs because of, of course, our, our history. So it's, it's well, well informed and, and well intended, but I, I think it's kind of funny, Alex, because then I did the DNA kit and I found out I'm like 2% Irish and I was like, free pass, yeah, no, I can do yeah. it. <laughs> so oh, the, the fact funny. that you brought up the DNA is really interesting because I think also a lot of, you know, I was teaching in the Philadelphia inner cities and I'm thinking, you know, how can I connect to these kids? And it, it really comes down to just human interaction and coming to them and treating them like humans, maybe the only time in their day where they were treated as, as they are a valued part of this community, but then, you know, it's all the romanticization of it as well. And it's, and as you know, cause I believe you live in Philadelphia, um, you can't go in with such a romantic idealization of what you're going to be able to accomplish as the art teacher when they've never had one. I got, I got tuned in very quickly to the fact that the last thing they were worried about was making some art. So then we just shifted and I did my best to meet them where they were. But it was a really invaluable experience for my whole entire life experience to be able to say to myself, well, all of these things are really wonderful in idea, but put into practice, how can, how, and, and it comes into the whole political scope too, like how can we reach people that are not necessarily able to reason with these ideas that they're just ignorant of, you know, because at the end of the day, that's just a human behavior. And, and I think that's all part of this as well. If you had come to me when I was 15 and a little punk rocker in Philly, I would have said, I don't care about being Pennsylvania Dutch. Like this doesn't matter to me, but it's all about like slow learning. I would say my friend, Susan Hess always says, it's really important to slow learn. And geez, I'm 41 now and how much I have learned just letting myself take the time to get to know these different things and the way that they they interact and the, and the intersections of all of these different parts of me and my experiences. And I think then take the, the point though would be then to take that. And you asked um, to kind of go back and kind of help to answer is these early exposures and how they shaped my education. And I would say they shaped my education in that I never stopped learning. Like I'm continuing my learning journey, not necessarily at a university, but I always say to my kids, it's funny because we started homeschooling during COVID. And I always say, look, mom's learning now. I'm natural learning. I have this thing that I'm interested in. I'm going and I'm following it through. And I'm learning so much because I have this passion for it. And I think that sort of is the full circle of my parents were very much like hippies, very into the melting pot idea. But to my benefit, they were so supportive of anything I wanted to do. So that was a really great gift to give me and has served me so, so well throughout my life. So that does answer the full question. (laughs) So I know that you're a practicing artist. How does your artist's eye influence the approach that you take to Pennsylvania Dutch culture? And what kind of research did you do uh, into design history uh, among the, the Pennsylvania Dutch communities? 
Another wonderful question. Um, so as a practicing artist, I would say precursor to that would be a natural artist and a natural visual learner. So Howard Gardner, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar because I've studied education for so long. He has the, um, the theory of multiple intelligences and that's the eight ways of learning. So when I found out about this, I was well into college and it all just so much clicked for me. Um, having grown up in the eighties and nineties and not being given a lot of different opportunities as students now, luckily are given a lot of Um, different experiences in the classroom. Um, I found that I was an auditory and visual learner. So I'm learning this in college and it really reset the whole thing for me and how I absorbed the information that I needed. So with that in mind, I think it was really neat actually to start this exploration as an adult because I was just saying to my husband the other day, had I started this when I was younger and didn't have the freedom of getting around or just like up and moving to Berks County from Philadelphia, um, it would have been a much different experience. And what's been really neat about this is I have continued to take the aesthetic response that I had to seeing my first frock tour, which was actually at the Philadelphia Free Library during the Framing Frockter exhibit. I'm sure you probably saw that if you were in the area. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And that was, so I had done a little research ahead of time. My husband and I had met and he was very into Pennsylvania Dutch folk art, but more of the heck science. But this was mind blowing to me. And it was the faces as flowers, which I call it, I'm not sure what the actual um, title was at the show, but it's the, um, the image that has the little flowers that have little faces in them, of course. <laughs> and I remember becoming completely obsessed with this motif and loving how it was so wild to me in what I thought in my upbringing was like sort of a tight and like um, a farming culture that like, you know, was very prudish and not very, and very, very super religious. I felt there was this sort of wildness in this art and this, and this gesture. And I just, so I just became completely obsessed and it like spoke to me in that way that I mentioned. It felt like things inside of me were erupting that I had never felt before. Like something in this art was connecting me to my actual ancestors, which I had felt so distant from because I had felt so removed because we were in Philadelphia. We were actually in Bucks County, which actually does have a lot of history with the Pennsylvania Dutch and Fractor and folk art. Um, But in, in the town I was in, in Bristol, shout out to Bristol. I, I felt certainly that I was one of the only Germans like, for miles and miles and miles, which was an asset to me as a human to grow up in a, a very multicultural experience. But I felt very other there. And so when I saw this art, and it sort of similarly happened a few years before when I first saw Hunter's art, which was Hex Science. I don't know, there was just something that erupted inside of me and this excitement that I had never felt with art before. And I had really been immersed in art for a very long time. The only thing that I could kind of equate it with would, would be seeing like the Fauves and like the really wild art. Like it felt this, there, there was this energy in this art. And I don't know if you would say that you feel the same way when you see some of these things, but I know it just, it felt like it was bubbling over and I could not get enough. So I was very blessed to be in a certain time in my life where I had the time and the ability to, to start this journey and, and slow learn it. Like I mentioned before, because it's just been something. And now with that, with that very first experience of seeing that work in person, right. I always 
approach when I'm making artwork with that framework of, I want my viewer or the collector or the person that sees this and has it in their home, like a very special experience to have your work in someone's home that they're seeing every day. I want them to feel that connection. Whatever that was that I was able to um, capture in my experience, I want those people to feel that. So that's something that I've always tried to um, work through that framework of the aesthetic response. And of course, design education will teach you all the different sort of ingredients that you need to make to evoke that kind of um, excitement in, in someone when they look at your work. Yeah. So I just want to, I want to respond to that, the book, sort of the, the point that you raised there. Cause I, I think it's so interesting. I first I'll note that we began our journeys, so to speak into Pennsylvania, German, Pennsylvania, Dutch folk art. And, you know, I would say material texts, Fraktorschrift manuscripts at about the same time, because I, I began my journey 10 years ago in 2012 is when I started wow. my graduate program and moved out to, um, Delaware for graduate school, you know, came to Pennsylvania for the first time in my life, you know, driving, driving from Minnesota through Lancaster County, through Southeastern Pennsylvania down to Delaware. And it's fascinating to me because my reaction, probably both because of my own mindset and my complete lack of any familiarity or connection whatsoever to the region was quite different in the sense that it was not a feeling of, you know, any sort of cultural rootedness in the material. It was more of a feeling for me of um, the, 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 the total lack of familiarity and the otherworldliness of a lot of this material combined with the knowledge that I needed to choose a, a topic to write my thesis on. Right. You know, and, and thus I had all these questions bubbling up in my mind. So if, it sounds like you were feeling a sort of, bubbling up of emotional aesthetic response to the material and what i was feeling was this um confusion frankly and (laughs) and and like not in a bad way just that was was the reaction (laughs) that i had as i was walking around winterthur for the first you know couple times looking at all this stuff thinking so what is this exactly why (laughs) were there were germans in early pennsylvania i didn't know that you know i how, how would i i had never really stumbled across the, you know, the the rich panoply of all the different German-speaking communities in, in Pennsylvania before. And so my reaction was not one of feeling rooted in the material, but one of feeling somewhat alienated from it. Like, I don't understand this at all, and now I need to figure out what these documents are saying. And then my life, you know, veered off in this direction where now my idea of fun is going to Lancaster to a smorgasbord and then to a historical society to study the primary sources. So it's um, kind of amazing how, you know, little little experiences like that can can shape yeah. your life but, but but your point is very valid that i guess if i had to you know pinpoint when my own moment of change came in terms of focusing on this it was an aesthetic response it was an aesthetic response at winterthur you know in the frock tour room in the historic house in the collection storage areas looking at this material and just feeling like feeling and thinking that there, there are so many questions still to be answered mm. about it. So um, similar in some ways, but obviously coming geographically and family-wise from different backgrounds, it was a sort of different set of, I guess, emotions and questions that I found myself asking. 
Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because I think this was just a very emotional response, but I would say to your point as well, I definitely felt very alien to it because at the time, you know, I had grown up in Bucks County in a very diverse little town, and this was not something that was extremely important for my family to make sure that we understood. And I w- didn't have much exposure as a young child. Like we w- went to Gosha Happen with my grandmother, the Duchess of the Dutch, but there wasn't like a like I had never been to the folk fest or anything or been to some of the museums. I felt very alien as well. It's sort of like at this moment, it all kind of came together and I was like, okay, I feel really other in the way that I grew up, but now I feel very other here because now I'm coming to this contemporary community as an absolute outsider. So I call myself like the only Valley Valley girl because I'm like (laughs) this little punk rock girl that grew up in the Philadelphia area and yeah, I have the ethnicity and I have like the receipts and I'm connected to the Fisher house. Like here, you can look them up. Right. But they're also looking at me like I'm very much, I can absolutely identify with that feeling of sort of, I think for both of us, there was just something about it that felt we needed to explore it more. And I think that's something that's very similar, but also this feeling of, you know, oh my gosh, how am I going to navigate this? Because this is so foreign to me. So it's really interesting you mentioned that. Um, I feel like with that in mind too, Alex, like I always try really hard and I guess this is the inherent teacher in me and like motherly type of person. I try and help people along when I feel um, that maybe they're feeling that as well. When you just get a feeling that somebody's feeling like very intimidated and I try really hard to be that person at our table, at our, um, our contemporary leaders table, I guess you could say that. And there's other people at the table certainly, but um, I know I had, face some people that were not very kind to me when I first started my journey and were very naysayers about Procter in general. And gosh, can you imagine? Um, so I always try and keep that in mind that that feeling of otherness will always shape the way I approach others and interactions. So I think that's really very interesting. Um, I didn't answer the second part of your question though. So don't let, don't let me stop you go for it. (laughs) (laughs) So it says, and what kind of research did you do into the design history? So that's a very interesting question. Cause like you, my friend, I was on my path to my MFA thesis and it's not actually a thesis at Kutztown university. It's, um, a project because we don't have to do the extensive research, but my crazy self (laughs) wanted to do extensive research within their framework. And I will say that that came much later. So the timeline is we went to see Framing Proctor. My son was born, so it must've been 2014. But then we moved to Berks County, like very shortly after. My husband's also Pennsylvania Dutch, grew up around here, and we wanted to be immersed in the area where we were connecting ourselves in our artistic practices too. So that came about in 2014. And then I went into grad school around 2015, 2016. And I started with communication design, basically to get my plus 24 so I could continue teaching. That was the original idea. Everything took a total turn, just like your story. When I reached this moment where I had to decide what was I going to study? Because design was very foreign to me. I was a very traditional artist, but I wanted it so badly to learn about it. So I found something that could connect my actual love, if I have to be quite frank, which is art and Pennsylvania Dutch art, folk art, and design. And how could I marry these two and braid them together, these different threads? So I was so blessed. Big shout out to my professors in the MFA program at Kutztown University Communication Design. 
where else would be the best place to study this? It's like ground zero for all things. Um, you know, the Reading Burke Guild was started there. We had a wonderful president, um, De Francesco, very supportive of and very enthusiastic about Pennsylvania Dutch folk art, but was not actually Pennsylvania Dutch. And there's another great example. He did wonderful things for our people and and the Kutztown University. So he was a very beloved president. But yes, my professors helped me so, so much. They knew I was like this out, again, another place where I was sort of other because I wasn't really a designer studying this, but I wanted it so badly, which goes back to that work ethic and just having this strong desire and just, you know, getting the right people to back me up and help me in my journey because they knew that I would do the work and I would produce it. So they and I figured studying surface pattern design was sort of a good avenue for me to marry my artistic practices of traditional folk art and handmade art with a type of design that creates replications of a a pattern that you maybe had made handmade, which is how I sort of did my actual thesis project. So that, that exploration and research is how I sort of uncovered this kitschy thing, which actually was just happenstance. So it's very interesting. So I love that part of your question. I wanted to make sure to mention that because this was not sort of the trajectory that my life was on. I was an art teacher. I was going to continue to be an art teacher and make folk art. But then I sort of happened into this program and just found the support and and they honored the tradition. It wasn't a very um, negative thing in this experience for me, which meant a lot to me because I'm a contemporary artist that wants to honor tradition, but also look at things from our contemporary lens and framework. And I believe folk art evolves and it should be folk art for the people of the contemporary times with a nod to our, to our ancestors. So I think that's really important to point out. So I just want to send all the love to my wonderful professors that helped me so, so much. Thing about the power of interdisciplinary scholarship and practice, you know, yes. when you, when you are encouraged to bring together multiple perspectives and sort of weave something new with them, yes. it can, it can lead to very important results, which leads me to my next question, which is why then, why publish your findings as this book that I have sitting in front of me <laughs> conversation was that I mean obviously you do when you write an MA thesis or an MFA project you don't have to then see it through to to publication in this form and I'm wondering what was your motivation to share your findings with the world via this particular medium I'll give you this I will say that during my exploration I had so many people that just held me up during a time where this of course privately we've talked about you know, this is very, it's, it's counterintuitive to, to counterintuitive to me to do this kind of sort of research and writing. I very much enjoy creative writing, but this kind of research based writing was very counterintuitive to me and I was terrified of it. But I think that's because of the way that I was schooled when I was young. And when I learned the research process, I mean, Dewey Decimal System, I miss it a lot, but I'm just saying it was very antiquated and it was, here's your topic figure it out. And these are the steps you need to take. And it always felt like I was just going through the motions. I was never connected to the subject matter. Like you mentioned, when you're in an MFA thesis or MFA program, I apologize, you get to decide and your professors should be there helping you figure out how to make these connections and sort of pushing you in the right direction. So the reason that it became a book was because of those connections and my whole journey, my whole time at at Kutztown University, every single class 
it was deeply connected to my personal experience and my personal journey of healing this sense of not belonging or the sense of like not having a community that I, that I felt connected to. And it's, it's so interesting because I think a lot of people probably do go through their, um, their experiences at college or, or studying for their masters or, or PhDs and just sort of going through the motions to get to the end point. But mine was, I, I ended up taking longer than I should, of course. Um, I was raising some children in there too, so it, it made a lot of sense. But I wanted to hold on to this moment of having this intense support system to help me make these incredible connections. And and that moment and that, I'm sorry, and that experience was so profound for me um, that I think it just felt like all of the different connections that were coming together for me needed to be documented. And what I wanted to say, because you and I know each other through the Schweinfelder, the Schweinfelder Library and Heritage Center, and Candace Perry over there at the Schweinfelder, the curator, was so instrumental in my study and so giving and 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 charitable with her time and her patience with me as I'm like this very over um, excited individual that she's so knowledgeable about this work, but I've got like this intense desire to consume as much information as I possibly can and then figure out how to like compartmentalize it in my head so I don't ask her the same thing in a couple days, you know? She was so incredibly instrumental in this. And she said to me, Alex, and I thought, whoa, she said to me, Rachel, this is really a big deal because this is original research. Nobody has really tackled this topic yet. And I thought, oh my gosh. And she said to me, Alex, she said, you should put this out. You should publish this because it's original research and it should be shared. And I thought, oh my goodness. Okay, Candace, like whatever you say, <laughs> Queen Candace. Absolutely. And so she said, check out um, Arcadia Press, History Press. They put out these really great short books. You don't have to feel a lot of stress or, or you know, because it was so counterintuitive, this type of work, you don't have to feel like overwhelmed by it. They're really wonderful. And I had already seen a bunch of them because we lived in East Kensington and we had these cool books around. And I was like, oh, I'm so into this. So that's really the reason that it became a book. Um, and and just to just to answer a little bit more about that, I decided after working with them for several years, kind of trying to push and pull, um, they really wanted me to rewrite the whole thing. They wanted it to be a historic narrative. And I love their books. And I loved the um, one that they did about, um, I want to call it spam and it's not spam. <laughs> I'm going to get ostracized by all my best mates. Um, what the heck is that meat called? Oh my gosh, Alex. Hold on. Scrapple. Thank you, sir. Yes, yeah, Scrapple. They have this wonderful book about Scrapple by Amy Strauss, and she did a wonderful job. And my publisher was like, I was her publisher, check this book out, sort of use it as like, this is what we want you to do. But for me, it, it was it was already many years past when I had created this work. And and that that energy of the work was being changed too much. And we just decided, you know, it was a time during COVID and, you know, things were all topsy-turvy. My publisher was amazing. But we just decided that it was probably best um, that I just do it as a self-published book. And that felt really good to me because I wanted certain things to stay exactly how they were. Um, and so that's what I did because um, they also wanted me to add like 10,000 words. So I was thinking, I don't know where I'm going to pull this from because, you know, as you know, life had changed so much during COVID and so many of the in-person interviews were just not happening. And a lot of the older folks that I was going to 
with their experiences were not going to be able to help me out in this way. And I thought, you know what, this is like sort of like a time capsule. And this is what I was doing in this moment. And it felt very much like now I've moved on and I would like to put this out and sort of go on to the next part of the evolution of this experience and this research. So that is the very long answer. <laughs> well, and I mean, the bottom line is you, know, you are, and you tell me if this is not a correct sort of summation of what you've just said, but you are first and foremost, a visual artist who is doing this work as a sort of documentation and foundation for an artistic practice that sheds light yeah. on the culture. And so to, to translate that into as a sort of historicist narrative would not have been your ballywick, shall we say. 100%. And it would have just been inauthentic for me. And it right. felt that way. It felt very forced. And that's an exactly perfect way to wrap it up. Um, and I really, the model that Frances Lichten had, um, she's a Pennsylvania Dutch, both scholar and artist, um, I sort of took her as a template for how to approach this work because she always included, which I found to be um, neglected oftentimes in, in some other scholarly work about this work, what it actually, like you mentioned, the actual practice of it and, and, and sort of like this detail of the aesthetics of it that was very valuable. And I thought, you know, a historic narrative is just not my, <laughs> it's just not my wheelhouse. And that's exactly right. And you know what, to be honest, I'm a practicing artist. I needed to move on and get, and get back to the, the work that I'm good at. <laughs> and I want to follow up on something else you shared, which is how wonderful Candace is. <laughs> oh, Lord um, have mercy. Yeah. Because Candace, I mean, you know, this obviously from our previous conversations at the Schwenkfelder library, but Candace and, and the entire institution, the Schwenkfelder library and heritage center really helped me when I was working on my thesis, which, I mean, I guess we were out and about doing this work at precisely the same time, but, exactly. um, you know, coming from, from these different perspectives. And I remember talking with Candace very early on about, okay, what, what do I really have to say about this subject matter that hasn't been said before? Am I say, am I doing something that has, you know, analytical value to, to pile on top of, you know, the mountain of books and articles that have been published on this, on the subject. And Candace has this great ability of being able to point you in the direction <laughs> of where there are still meaningful contributions to be made yeah. in the field. Because the thing about Pennsylvania German studies, Pennsylvania Dutch studies broadly conceived is that yes, it is very well trod territory, but there are still you know, vast swaths of primary sources that have not been explored, including at places as well known as the Schwenkfelder Library and Heritage Center. And even for the materials that have been well utilized before for in various studies, oftentimes they need to be reinterpreted and looked at in new ways to sort of bring bring the interpretation to to where we are right now in our world. And I think that Candace is very, very capable, as are the other, you know, I think Alan Meemeyer, others at the Schwenkfelder Library, at sort of saying, you know, this is fresh, untilled earth that really could use some exploration. And I think that that's, um, you know, when I was early in my studies, I felt very uncomfortable in a way with what I was trying to do for two reasons. The one being this you know, specter hanging over me that why on earth am I studying a topic that others have already studied 
to such, you know, great in, in such great quantities and to such great depth before, even though I've from a very early moment had this thought that I think I have something to say that hasn't been said before or has not been very clearly articulated before. But then the other component of it was what we already talked about, you know, who am I to be doing this work? Yeah, I, I never felt unwelcome in any of uh, you know institution or as I was going about doing this work, I never felt any sort of pushback, you know, just sort of coming in from the outside, quite the contrary, everyone was very welcoming. But it is this feeling of, I mean, you know, I'm I'm a guy from Minnesota who now lives in Delaware, and I had no notion at that point that I would even be staying in this region after I finished my graduate education. So, you know, it, in a way, I, I felt a little timid about doing the work. But then people like Candace and you know, countless other librarians and curators and scholars across the region definitely helped pinpoint, okay, here's what you're saying that is actually quite new and different. So please go ahead and make sure that you can make this point. Yeah, absolutely. She is very, very gifted in that. She is a natural teacher for sure. And I'll just mention, when I saw your presentation and got your book, I felt so connected to your presentation of the work by seeing it was, and I hope I don't misquote you, but I remember it just sticks out to me, as you said, it was a devotional of sorts for these people, like a very, very intense devotional. And it was like, bam, lightning hit me in the Schwankfelder as I'm listening to your presentation and taking pictures. I said to myself, that's exactly what I'm doing, Alex. I'm literally in ritual with my ancestors when I make this artwork. And it was so profound for me. And I thought, He's onto something. I like this perspective because a lot, I'm not going to lie, a lot of the super scholarly work that's been done is very difficult for me to be engaged with. And I really love the work you did. So to, to everyone's help and, and, and all the people that, that, that helped you out through that, it really is an incredible, incredible book. And I love that perspective. And it's not even, it just feels so truthful because I always ask myself, and I'm sure you asked yourself this too. Why would such hardworking, frugal people take the time? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? This right. is my this is my bottom line every time. It had to be extremely meaningful to them. And you know what? When people say just for nice, oh no, sir. Not not true. Perhaps maybe at some point, but not in the beginning, friends. This was not just for nice, which is a saying that's oh, they were just doing it because it was decorative. No way. These hardworking people facing so much adversity, did not take the time to do this unless it was extremely impactful and meaningful to them. And then carry it with them on the ship in their trunk. I mean, it was another thing that Candace shared with me, and I'm sure you know this, is the things that they brought with them. And the Schweinfelders were a different echelon of people than other Pensy and Dutch um, Mm -hmm. people that came here, much, much different echelon, much more learned and um, well-to-do and and had food on the ship. It was all just a very different experience. But as their museum educator, I was teaching kids what they would have had in their trunk. And boy, did I learn from Candace in a matter of 20 minutes, not the things I would have thought. It was the books. It was the books. It was the word of Schwenkfeld. And it was these devotionals. And I loved the way you put that, the way you put those ideas together. And I really think that is absolutely just something I've never seen before. So kudos to you. It was a very profound experience for me as I'm watching you present this because I thought that's exactly what I do. I always talk about being in in 
in worship with my ancestors during these practices. So uh, I just want to tell you, I, I'm really glad we had a chance for me to let you know that because it was just so profound for me when I heard you say that. Well, my heart just grew three sizes. Thank you so much. <laughs> and, it's, and it is very, again, getting to this distinction about, of disciplines here. I mean, for me, it's yeah. very useful and affirming to hear you say that because, okay, now I know that a modern practitioner of this art form is saying, yes, it, it, there's a worshipful devotional quality to it. And I think that this is where, and I, I, I've said this in a previous podcast episode a couple of seasons ago, you know, this is where for me being a complete and total outsider from this culture was actually really useful, I think, in approaching yes. the study that I undertook because I asked the most basic questions when yes. I saw these materials at Winterthur. Questions like, okay, what is this thing? Why mm-hmm. is this? Th- why, why does this exist? Why, why were German, you know, ethnic Germans to the extent that such things existed in, in the 18th century and early 19th century? Why were they maintaining the German language in, in this time period? Why were they maintaining a separate system of script? You know, why would they make this? Those are the most elementary questions that can be asked about this art form. And they are also, meaning the art form of devotional calligraphy and manuscript illumination, they are also the most difficult questions to answer. Yeah. Because because you have to try to enter into a very, very different intellectual, spiritual world, cultural world, than that which we inhabit today. And in a way, it's much easier to say, when was this artist born? When did this artist Mm. die? What did this artist make? Where are the extant pieces? Those questions are fact-based. But when you are talking about the why, you are into mm. the world of interpretation. And it's yes. um, it's a different beast entirely. And I think that we need, as, as scholars of the subject matter and as like you as an artist who who is engaging with this and interpreting it for, for the public today, we need to feel comfortable engaging with those questions. Absolutely. And I think also to your point, Alex, is we need to be comfortable with having conversations between each other, such as ours today, because I feel even contemporary scholars and practitioners, there's certainly a divide. And it's it's so insane to me to imagine writing about something without either A, experiencing it, like you said, you wanted to experience the tactile nature of creating this, or B, having very, very important and valuable discussions with people who do practice it or did. Um, And I think that's something so important that's missing. And I would say not in all cases, but in a lot of scholarly work. Um, And I would say that that's something that I felt palpably from the work that you had done, that you had a sensitivity to that. And you understood that that is super valuable and it's not, they weren't non-essential. They brought their own perspective to the table. And it was an individual that had their own values and and different systems. Um, I think that's really, really important to point out as well. And and I like that we're able to sit here and do this because we do find that we have a lot of similarities actually. Um, Because I, as well, you know, I felt very foreign and alien when I got here and it took people like Candace and people with that sensitivity about that, that what I have to share is invaluable as well, because I am a practitioner that it was important for her to teach me the right way to look at things. I would say, I, I know that's sort of, a, you know, uh, giving her a lot of, but um, 
it really was like that. She, I did ask her, it's so funny you're mentioning this. I asked her all the same things too, because it was not part of my experience. Mm-hmm. I cert- I grew up in the suburbs. I certainly was like a city girl for a very long time. And this was so foreign to me. So, but unlike you, Alex, I would ask in a very like, I already know this, but what is this? I can't really make it out. Size. <laughs> but Candace, of course, saw through it. And she's just like such a stand up lady. She just, she wants people. She is so special and, and precious, I would say, because she really, really, and, and actually all the folks at the Shrine Photo, I would say, they really, really want people to understand it. It's not just like a job for them. It's they're deeply committed to, to helping people understand and, and immerse themselves in what, what this must've been like for these people. And it's very cool to have worked there and experienced that. And then also to have been a person who participated in, in learning from them, you know, when I was doing my research and, and even when I was working there, I mean, such, it's such a special precious place and treasure. If you have not been to the Schmeichfutter, please make a trip there. Um, I know sometimes people don't realize uh, how precious it is, but it's just an incredible place. It is. And I have to say, I mean, first off, Candace is going to blush like crazy when she listens <laughs> to this. <laughs> but it's all a well-deserved phrase and she, 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 she'll just have to deal with it because this is how we feel. But um you, you you make a really interesting point about about the Schwenkfelders as a community and then the Schwenkfelder Library today because you know as you note they were at least in terms of their leadership in those early generations I mean, it's a it's a highly intellectual yes. community and it's a, even myst- I guess I guess you could describe them as mystical spiritualists and you um the, the the folks there could do a much better job really crystallizing it than I can, but, but, but there's, there is this feeling that when you are engaging with their, their books, their man, their early manuscripts and their material culture, that you are passing through this veil into yes. a very different spiritual world you know, rooted in the movements of the era of the Protestant Reformation. And to see that sort of transferred here to Pennsylvania, I mean, it's, there's nothing quite like it. And I have to confess to you that my, my dream project, like glimmering in the future that maybe someday I'll be able to do is I just want to apprentice myself to Alan V. Meyer at the Schwenkfelder Library and put on my my monk's habit and just like engage with all of these Schwenkfelder, you know, printed books in, in, in German, all the all the manuscripts in Latin and German, and just immerse myself in that world because it's so complicated and so amazing. And when you step into that library at the Schoenfelder Library and Heritage Center, I feel like I'm stepping into early modern Europe. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and, I don't, and I don't exactly get that feeling from every other Pennsylvania Dutch institution. You know, yeah. I mean, and, and all of the other religious communities are you know, equally fascinating and complex and dignified and important. But there's just something about that Schwenkfelder material culture and the material texts in particular, that's unlike anything else I've ever experienced. Well, and you have so much experience in, in those ways, but I, again, I have not done extensive research at different places, but I would absolutely echo that, that there is, it's like walking through the veil, as you mentioned, it is a definitely distinct experience. And um, I think you're, interest in working with Alan is beautiful. And we certainly need that. Um, Alan is an incredible wealth of knowledge. And 
I would sit and just listen and listen and listen for hours to Alan. He was a wonderful person to work with and to study from him. And I would say they need that. They need someone that, that would be committed in that way. So if you're really interested, I would reach out because, you know, Alan is just such a gem. And uh, actually within my DNA exploration, I found that I have a Schwenkfelder descendant, which was really, really cool because I had already been studying there for so long, Alex. And then this was all during the time that I started working there and it was just, oh, it, and I didn't need that, but it just, even, even the religion itself, which I don't follow, but it just felt really comfortable for me. And it's a very, very distinct way of thinking. And it's, it's really, really very, very, very interesting. And I just encourage everybody to check it out because it's just, it's, it's, the museum's beautiful and, and the experience is beautiful and they've done a wonderful job. Candace is of course the curator. Um, and the archivist Hunt has done a wonderful job as well. And Alan, of course, and now we have Beth over there as the director and Joanne is a wonderful person as well. I just, I have so much love for them and it just keeps getting better. It just keeps getting better over there. And I'll tell you what, I just have never been able to quite immerse myself in, um, in, in the artifacts in that way. And, um, as, as the kind of learner I am, it, it really is valuable to me because it, 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 it hooked me and I was hooked and forget about it. It was over. I just yeah. love, I love it. I love it. That's how you know that you're a material culture person is once you get hooked yes. on the artifacts, like your life, as you know, as you know, it has come to a close yes. and you are going to be a big, gigantic museum and library nerd forever a hundred percent and boy oh boy i'll tell you what alex i'm glad to be here i would not trade it for anything i wish i had found it sooner yeah. i could have skipped all the nonsense in my 20s well all of that helped helped us become who we are today Absolutely. <laughs> no regrets yeah no regrets so let's pivot now and talk a little bit more about some of the uh, the ideas the arguments the analyses that you put forward in your book can you sum up for me what your distinction is uh, between folk art and kitsch, as you describe it in the book? That's a wonderful question and <laughs> so much to unpack because going into the study, I was able to visually say, oh, that's kitsch, that's folk art. But to be able to put it into words and make it measurable was definitely one of the challenges. But I found a lot of help um, from certain certain writers and people that had discussed this in the past, not necessarily particularly in the Pennsylvania Dutch culture, but in general. And what I found was the word kitsch actually comes from Germany and it means to smear. Oh, I'm looking back into the book. Hang on. <laughs> so the word kitsch actually is from the dialect German word kitchen. I hope I, I'm sure I botched that, but it means to smear and from the German verb ver kitchen or to cheapen. So a, min a mispronunciation of the English word to sketch or the inversion of French chic, fashionable. So I found that really interesting because I also love language because in my mind, it's sort of that auditory <laughs> part of my brain. And the way that things are translated in different languages is very interesting to me. So I don't think that probably it was something that many people would have identified this work as. I had sort of come up with it myself just based on 
my knowledge of aesthetics and kitchen as a general experience. And you could also like the tacky idea or, um, uh, what's another good word for that? Um, gaudy. So it's really interesting. Let's just circle back to Candace for a moment that Candace and I both have this like very intense love for like gaudy and tacky and kitschy stuff. So a lot of times in her, in her, in her work as the curator, she would get a lot of things donated and she would say, Oh, I love this so much, but it's so tacky. It's so gaudy, but I really want to like incorporate it somehow. So it's really interesting because just in general, as a human, I love tacky stuff. I appreciate it a lot. It's something that I'm just like aesthetically drawn to it, like flashy and big and very graphic colors, very opaque colors. I love these things. Right. So, I mean, even just Andy Warhol, like that whole entire experience of pop art, totally love it. So I would say, and I write about it in different, a couple of different places in the book, but what it comes down to is a very small little portion of the book that I'll just read really quickly, if that's okay. So what I say is before delving into the differences between authentic Pennsylvania Dutch folk art designs and Pennsylvania Dutch kitsch design, we must first explore how to visually identify both types of designs, which I think, again, is very important to be able to measure them. Authentic Pennsylvania Dutch folk art designs were inspired by fracture or hexine motifs popular among the Pennsylvania Dutch craftspeople from about 1700s on. And the time-honored motifs fall into a few groups found on early pieces are tulip or lily, the heart, a variety of birds, star or geometric shapes, the stag, the unicorn, the urn, strange mermaids, my favorite, odd cherubs, and angels. And this is, of course, as I mentioned, Frances Lichten. In 1954, she wrote that. So these designs were inspired by traditional fractor art and motifs that originated from Germany and are still practiced by folk artists today. The easiest way to differentiate authentic Pennsylvania Dutch motifs is that they are imperfect and have a whimsical and gestural quality to them. Even the most precisely done Vorschrift will always have that sort of human element of the human element of mistake. You know, there'll be something that you can notate is, you know, maybe there's a stain on it or something, something that shows you that this was a handcrafted item, much similar to handcrafts these days. Many times artists and designers will leave pencil marks or paint splatters visible to signify the handmade nature of the design. Now, I don't believe that they meant to do that, it was probably something that they were not happy about, but that's a way to identify it aesthetically. Another very telling observation of authentic Pennsylvania Dutch designs are the traditional colors of yellow, red, green, blue, and black that are used. Finally, you can often see the paint raised in certain areas or slight gradation in the strokes. So then the adverse would be the kitsch designs are very illustrative, very graphic. You see these sort of offset colors and they're, they're opaque, and you don't see a lot of whimsy and gestural uh, mark-making. So I would say that's the best way aesthetically to delineate. And then as far as commercially, you know, traditional Pennsylvania Dutch folk art or designs is something that you're going to have to acquire either going to an event, going to see the folk artist at their home studio, you know, in, in places like the Schweinfelder, in places like, geez, well, Mennonite Heritage Center has a lot of great places, uh, a lot of great pieces as well. And then with kitsch products, you'd be able to order it because it was massly produced and it would be all kinds of places unexpectedly. I know 
during the time that Zook was working and creating replications of designs that were created for him, um, they were one of the biggest proud moments was that it was all over the United States, all, all across the world, these things had reached. So I think that's another really big marker. Nowadays, of course, with Etsy and um, different ways that you can buy online, there's a lot more accessibility to traditional folk art of the Pennsylvania Dutch. But in those days, it wasn't quite that way. One more thing that I would say this, Francis Lichten talks about this because it became popular to consume this artwork early 19th century, but it was done in a way that it was antiques and it was authentic work that was being collected globally and became very, very popular. But these were people collecting antiques of traditional folk art of the Pennsylvania Dutch, not necessarily, you know, engaging with these replications that were very, very popular, like mid-century. So I think that's really important to note, too, that it was already very popular, which I think started the wheels turning to create this kitsch effect that I talked about. Right. It was like it was, it was popular among scholars and collectors and antiquaries who were yes. interested in the folk art tradition, and thus it maintained a sort of a direct link to authenticity, even if these people were taking it somewhat out of context, out of the region. And then the kitsch movement was about bringing this aesthetic or a sort of transposition of the aesthetic to a mass market. Absolutely. And that's the thing that's really important to notate too, that I'm glad you mentioned. These are two very, very different, what we would call in design target audiences. I don't believe that they ever crossed paths or there was ever any intention to set into motion these kitsch items being made. I think it was two very different trains moving just sort of in very different directions. Right. But it's important to note that, uh, you know, Pennsylvania Dutch folk art had become popular in the 1900s and that, that maybe that encouraged this idea of creating products as trends. Right. So why, I mean, by which I mean, why did the Pennsylvania Dutch culture broadly conceived that you're not just its folk art, but the region itself and the life sort of the, a basic understanding or sort of surface level understanding of the lifestyle. Why did it end up becoming popular at that time in the early years of the 20th century? And why was there a mass market for a sort of Pennsylvania Dutch kitsch? What a great question. And I don't even know if I ever did quite get my answer, but I did present my theory that when you think about what was happening generally in, in America at the time, people were leaving their rural areas and moving into suburbs and cities. And I think this idea of country life became very quaint and maybe perhaps I have not spoken to anybody that would assert this viewpoint, but maybe it, it gave people that had left a good sense of maintaining that country identity that maybe was their roots, maybe not necessarily Pennsylvania Dutch, but it's a beautiful style of artwork and it just lent itself very well to encompassing this idea of country living and slow living when you're in the middle of these suburbs, which I grew up in and it's life is fast. Life is fast in a town. Life is fast in the city. And then you come home and you're trying to decompress and you see these beautiful items that they are very, very beautiful. And they just give you this nostalgia and this idea of a place that maybe you never even knew. Maybe you have no connections to country life at all, but it makes you feel 
really good. And it just, it, it invokes this, this feeling of calm and, and, you know, slow living and farm life. And, you know, these ideas about what people think farm life is like, I'm guilty of it myself. I, I always thought that was like the simple life, not so much. It's a lot of work and a lot goes into it. And the hours are not kept the same as people, you know, with different kinds of positions. But I think it's this like very romanticized idea of what country living was. And I think it just like every trend in fashion, in, in home goods, um, it just became something that people really responded to. And really there's no rhyme or reason sometimes for trends. I lived through the nineties. <laughs> Trust me, the MC hammer pants, there's really no rhyme or reason, for them. but it's so funny to me because I mean, as a Pennsylvania Dutch person and somebody that grew out, grew up outside of the culture, I very much felt this resonance with these, these items. And I felt connected to them. And when I saw them, I was like, Oh, cool. I think it does a really good job at what it's supposed to do, which is giving you this feeling of what the folk art makes you feel, but a fake of that. Right. So it's like, it's a fake, a fake product, but can definitely invoke the same feeling. So it's really, they do a good job. You know, so yeah, that's what I would say about that. That there's really no explanation about why it became popular, but maybe there was just a an opportunity of vacuum in in the trends and it just went in there. But I, I always kind of think about um that that mass exodus of rural areas into more towns and, and city life as being sort of an, an area where there was room for this to uh, assert itself. I think it's a really valuable observation. And you know, not to, not to sound radical or anything, but I think that you can apply Marx's idea of alienation, that in this era of increasing industrialization, urbanization, you know, working class and middle class people, white collar and blue collar people becoming less and less attached to the product of their labor, having less Mm. and less control over what they create with their hands and with their minds and where it's created and how it's created, the, the emergence of this consumer culture, you know, it's not surprising, as you say, that there's maybe an emergence of a kind of escapist fantasy of what a rural agrarian country life might have been like. And then this embrace of, of this um, aesthetic of the Pennsylvania Dutch country life even though, ironically enough, for all of those people, what they were actually buying was a sort of mass-produced reproduction of the authentic, quote-unquote, authentic handcrafted pieces from earlier gen- generations. And I think it's interesting to bear to put this in the perspective again of geography that you know not only does Lancaster County and, and sort of the surrounding Pennsylvania Dutch country not only do, does it feel a world away from the the major eastern seaboard cities but it's not a world away it's easy to get there you know you know, it's hard to get to where i'm from northern minnesota from a, a major metropole with the, with the one exception being of course the twin cities and you know there are other parts of the country that are agrarian and rural and much more isolated than lancaster county is nowadays 
And so putting that in the context of the early 20th century, I mean, this was early to mid 20th century. This was a region that was both distinctly different, but also very accessible to the, the, you know, the major financial and industrial centers of, of their, of their era. So um, I really think it's an important perspective that you, that you are highlighting here, that there was a, a reason why, there all of a sudden was a mass market for this kind of product. Yeah, absolutely. And I think something that I'm more interested in now than ever is the romanticization of what life was like for for pioneers here and 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 Pennsylvania Dutch people and and the farmers. And you know, the other half of me is mostly Welsh and just the coal mining. Um, right. And learning that history, and then they came to Pennsylvania, and they were coal miners. I mean, where this becomes dangerous is when it's overly romanticized, and right. that's that's what I think is so so important takeaway. The biggest takeaway from my research, and what I hope people get from the book, is to be an ethical consumer is is definitely something that's more of a now idea, but I think it's a very good evolution of consumerism and I see a huge wave of it and that makes me really happy and I hope for and I'm probably getting ahead of myself because I know you have a question about this but for all the folks that were damaged by this and had to fight this narrative that was created falsely um you know I hope for them that this honors uh what they were trying to do and achieve and and I'm very grateful for a more mindfulness of ethical cons- consumption of products and, right. and art and artists and writers and, and having more of a holistic responsibility, I guess you could say. Sure. Yeah. So one, one thing that you mentioned in the book that I find to be both amusing, but also this wonderful example of how material culture, you know, evolves over time and how it shapes our experiences the the kitsch items from the middle of the 20th century are now themselves out of production generally speaking and are collectors objects in and of themselves so what in your opinion are we to make of these objects today seeing as they essentially have entered the historical realm on their own you know they they are artifacts in the same way kind of that you know a, a, a quote-unquote original piece of pennsylvania german folk art might be what is the lens to bring to them you know what does it mean to collect those kinds of objects how has their resonance as artworks and artifacts evolved as they have aged yeah i love this question so much because this is one of those areas that there is no black and white and it's so interesting because I thought so, so much about this probably more than any other question because so there's a couple things that I want to mention. Um, number one, the struggle is real and I still have a great affection for these products. Even the ones that say the very offensive from my framework language, um, kind of dumbing down the dumb Dutchman kind of aesthetic and language experience. Um, I still have an affection for it because as somebody that grew up outside of the culture for a long time, this felt very much like home to me, just like it must have in the mid century to people that had been leaving their homes and moving to different experiences. So I think that's one thing to notate. 
But again, thinking about mindfulness. So a lot of things that I had collected before this research, I actually got rid of because it felt it felt very much like a violation suddenly. Because when you know better, you do better. And that's something that I try and keep in mind. Um, you know, we're learning a lot more about a lot of different cultures and how they've been appropriated and abused and exploited. And it doesn't mean that we don't interact with that culture. It means that we have a responsibility then to be more ethical and responsible and ask people that are from that culture, how do they feel about it? I think that's really something very important and and something in my research that was very, like a very poignant moment for me in my research was I, right before COVID, of course, thankfully, I was visiting Pennsylvania Dutch Gift House, which is in Charlottesville, Pennsylvania, and has since closed, unfortunately. And the owner, Dolores, was having a chat with me as she knew what my research was about and saying to me how frustrating it was at the amount of people that would come in and say these very offensive to her as a Pennsylvania Dutch person things that they had picked up from the general narrative, which had huge momentum, the kitsch narrative in mid-century, and it still lives on. And that's where it becomes dangerous because it reached much, much more people than our wonderful ethical scholars and our wonderful ethical community members that want to show an authentic portrayal of Pennsylvania Dutch people and, and the truth of it and not romanticize it. But the reach was so, so expansive and so vast that it's still, even now today, when we bend the folk fest, we get all kinds of, all kinds of comments that, you know, oh, this is that Amish hex sign and in Lancaster, it means this on their barns and the Amish, blah, blah, blah. And when you learn that the Amish actually don't believe in decorative arts and they find it a vanity, I know Candace has told me before that there are some artists that are Amish, but you'd find it maybe more with the Mennonites that would be practicing art. Um, but, and learning when, I guess a very buzz way of saying it would be like microaggressions, right? So you have to always do this dance between balancing a person's intention when they're saying something and also what level of, I, w- I want to say enlightenment, but I should say that, what level of understanding do they have about this thing that they've said. And, and finally, controlling your own response based on your own trauma surrounding this, this particular microaggression, I guess I can go back to that word. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. Um, but so, let me go back to what Dolores said. So she said that it was so hard for her because it would be so much. She's inundated with it. Quick history, Pennsylvania Dutch Gift House had been around for a very long time geez, they must've started, it was the tourism boom, which I talk about in my book as well. So they start, they must've started, I'd say at least in the fifties, they've been around for a very long time. And they just closed last year. Charlottesville, Pennsylvania was a big tourism place uh, along, I think it's route 71, but I don't want to get that wrong, but I know it's along a very, very important interstate. And she was the granddaughter of the founder of this place. And it was also um, a mini village, like a train village, was the other side of the building. So the Pennsylvania Dutch gift Haas, which just in its name, it's English and Dutch, right? So Haas is actually German and Pennsylvania Dutch is English, of course. So it's already all on a mishmash, right? So inside of the Pennsylvania Dutch gift Haas, when I had gone in, which was, of course, I guess, 2016, 17, 18, around in that era, it was just filled with these products. And it was filled with these products as you mentioned, framed as rare, 
vintage collectibles, okay? So then you're looking at this tablecloth that cost $3.99 when it was out. Let me see when this advertisement was from. Oh, so like 1960s, right? $3.99 for this Pennsylvania Dutch tablecloth. And now it's $80, Alex. And there's tons of them. So for me, it became the struggle of, okay, ma'am, I hear you. And I'm also a Pennsylvania Dutch person that is very frustrated by these microaggressions of people's ignorance within this narrative that they've consumed for years and years and years and is much stronger than the authentic narrative, right? But then how can you come to terms with then selling this work? And then, you know, you have to kind of decide, you have to decide as an individual, it's not black and white. Where do you draw the line as an ethical, either um, consumer or seller of these goods and products? Even in my case of the Pennsylvania Dutch folk art, where do I draw the line? You know, my political beliefs, my religious beliefs, my spiritual beliefs, my beliefs of how women and children should be treated in the world are very different than the people that were creating this artwork that inspires my artwork. That's why I always preface it with, I am a contemporary Pennsylvania Dutch folk artist because I, I personally believe that folk art evolves and it should be speaking to the people that are alive now. And I respect people that reenact and mm-hmm. create the work that they create the work that was made then. And it looks a lot like that. And it's all in the same style and all these things, but it's just not my path. So this was a very tense moment in the book and the research and this interaction with her. Cause she was lovely, but right. she didn't see the connection between feeling so highly offended by it, but then also making a great deal amount of money exploiting it. In my opinion, the right. cost difference so that was really hard for me. And that was a moment where I was like, mm. so then this idea of ethics and being responsible and not everybody is set out to do this. Right. But it, from my experience, I thought if I'm going to be creating something that's based on tradition, it's got to come through this, through this framework. And so that's a great question. And I feel that was really hard. So I would, I would call them and I would have loved to ask Candace, cause I'm sure she'd have a really great name for it as a curator and how, how she would actually identify it. But I would call it vintage collectibles. Sure. But the increase in price is just astronomical and completely insane, in my opinion. But as you know, with Fractor, it's similar as well. I mean, things that the prices that um, they get auctioned for, it's just wild. So it's a very interesting discussion, yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, again, it's this commodification effect. Yes. Yes. And, and and there has to be a market for this material to be able to command those kinds of prices. So I think that this delineation that you're drawing is really important. And obviously it's one that evolves over time as time marches steadily forward. I mean, the bottom line is that we are as far removed today from the area, from the era of the you know, Renaissance, the explosion of this, tourist kitsch material as those people were from the era of the making of the quote-unquote original artworks so it's a it's a vast scope of time in some ways and um yeah it's conceptually difficult to wrap your mind around and yet something that anyone who journeys into this tourist area is going to experience when they walk into gift shops and antique stores and other other stops you know that, that are well trod by people who who journey through that region so i would love to pivot now i mean you you talked a little bit about 
already how you, know, you, you sort of try to take this introspective, ethically informed approach to your own artwork. You frame yourself as a contemporary folk artist who finds inspiration in the past. Can you just sort of walk me through you know, what your your artistic practice looks like. I mean, how you conceptualize and create a piece. And say, say a bit more about how your historical research uh, has informed the, the work that you do in your studio. Oh, that's, that's such a really fun question to answer, actually, um, because my process is so strange and it's changed so much since since taking this very, very, very sharp right turn into um, exploring Pensafanischdeich folk art. Um, when I when I started creating as an artist, I was very much a fine artist, meaning that I found I found the art would come from within me and just from within me and my experience. And this was really important to me. And not all fine artists work in this way, but a, a more uh, personal narrative style. But when I found this work, I think it was, and what drew me to design in general was this idea of of threading together my intense love for creating and mark making with giving other people the joy that it gave me to experience art as a viewer, but also to create the art. So it became this sort of challenge, as it were, to... Um, be able to share what I experienced from this work with other people. And the coolest thing, and then I'll get into my practice, but the coolest thing to see is to be at a, a vending event and see somebody have that moment. And it almost, I could just start completely blubbering in sob with this because there's nothing more fulfilling for me in my practice than to see somebody, somebody have that moment uh, what, whatever their DNA is, whatever their ethnicity is, but to see them have that moment of just connection to art because art is so powerful. And it's the universal language, of course. You don't need to know all the different languages. You don't need to know all the different rules. It's it's so inherently primal for us to, to consume art and experience art. And, and it can change how we feel about things so drastically. No words spoken, no words read. So it's really fascinating in that way. So my practice now has changed very, very much. So now I, as I mentioned to you, I, I speak about it in a way of bringing all of these pieces together. Like I said, that were floating around for so long, they had come together for me when I saw that faces as flowers. And I thought to myself, this is an opportunity to connect me to my ancestors that have passed in a, in a very spiritual practice. So I always try to maintain a certain mood that I have to be in. It's almost like when you're getting ready to go to church, I would say. It's that feeling of, okay, this is a special sacred time. This is not a time to be distracted with all these different things going on. And I try and create this space. So I, I work in my attic and that's a very quiet space for me in my home. And it's also, you know, the, my whole life, the attic was the very spooky place where all the ghosts hung out and it's not very different now. So I always think, if there were a place in my home where my ancestor would come to visit me, it would be the attic for sure. So there's also that. I grew up in a very spooky house with not such fun experiences of spirits, but now it's it's a very it's a very good experience for me. I think ritual is so imperative for my practice and something that I've been really learning a lot more about in my more recent um, interests of uh, tapping into that Celtic 
and and particularly Irish ritual of keening and things like that when you're mourning. Um, these different different threads that come in and and they all come together and braid in my practice. So my work and my process has definitely evolved, but now I feel like I'm in this really sweet spot where I feel really comfortable that if it stayed the same for the rest of my life, I'd be really happy and feel like you get to a certain point when you're a practicing artist where you practice these motifs so much that then it becomes your language, Alex, which is really cool because it's, I can just go and my, my hands are making these motifs without me having to think so much through it. But originally when I had seen faces as flowers, I'm going to not lie to you. Pinterest was my best friend because I learned so much aesthetically. Just researching on Pinterest was so helpful. There had never been anything quite like it. Google images was okay, but Pinterest was so profound in this experience because I was able to find all kinds of things that were pulled, like the Schwank Flutter and the Free Library and Pook and Pook and all these different places that I was able to pull um, visual resources to kind of study this work. But then I also wanted to be really mindful of, I didn't want to be reproducing anybody's work. You know, I wanted to make sure it still had like my uh, aesthetic voice. So then I just years and years and years of practicing and creating this language, this visual language and this, and this way of working it and the method of working. Like I always start with red, like when I put down the color, things like that. And again, it's just the ritual. It becomes so, so powerful and, and prudent to me being able to do it. Like I probably wouldn't be able to create the things that I create in a different setting not in my little attic with the things very much set up. I always kind of think of it as like um, a living altar. So there's things in that room that remind me of my grandmother and my, and my other side and like Pennsylvania Dutch side and the Welsh side and all these different things all come together. And your books up there in my room, I have some books that are very special to me and, you know, I can just sort of absorb all of this energy when I go to sit down and create this work. I love um, the fact that I'm part of your energy in your studio. I love it too. Makes, I love it too. That makes me very happy. I'm, t- I'm telling you, your presentation was wonderful. Number one, it was designed very well. Number one. Number two, when you said that, it was like a bolt of lightning because I had been going on and on about how when I sit to paint, it's a dance with my ancestors, right? So it was always, I would always say it's like a dance with my ancestors and they're really like helping guide my hands. Mm-hmm. But now as I've, as I've sort of evolved and absorbed more in context of the history, it's becoming more, okay, the joy and, and the, the elation is, is moving on a bit and it's becoming more about healing some of the trauma, which is, wow. I mean, it's just such a neat evolution for me. And, and that, that, moment that you said that about a devotional, it it meant so much to me because I've never been a religious person. I was gently brought up sort of in the Methodist church, but it never was a connection to me. And I think at the end of the day, that was the longing, actually. That was the longing, not, 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 not necessarily community as in culture, as in celebration, but actually spiritual practices that honor people that came before me is very, very important to me. So I really, the divine is what it sounds like. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And when you said that, you know, I noted it in my head, of course, I was probably doing a million other things at the time, but I remember there was also a shift at the time because of COVID actually, frankly, uh, there was so much time in darkness and darkness as in uh, mourning of the life that we were having and the life that we were now having and the life that would be, 
Um, but really not being afraid of that darkness and embracing it. And, and this practice and this ritual got me, absolutely got me through that time. So I think all of these things kind of compounded, but I just keep mentioning when you said that, because you're so on target with that, because I know, because I'm experiencing that devotional, that if I don't get a chance to express myself in that way daily, I will feel, uh, I will feel (laughs) the psychological term. I will feel myself start to, um, disassociate literally with things that are extremely intense and stressful. But if I get that moment to center myself and have that time with the ancestors, whether or not it's all, you know, super duper willy nilly hippie stuff, or if they really are sitting there with me, I do believe they are either way. It's still just like the art. It still gives me that intense emotional experience, just like the kitsch would do for some people. So it's like, at the end of the day, that's the part that matters. So I think the thing that you presented in your findings and your research that was different than what I had read before was that, that acknowledgement of the devotion, because all of these people were not seeing the part where these were such a hardworking, frugal group of people, even the Schweinfelders. I mean, that it didn't make any sense otherwise, except that it was extremely valuable to them. And Candace said in their trunk was their writings and their studies of Schweinfeld's words. And that was what was valuable to them. Well, I think that this is so important because, you know, what, what you are talking about is certainly something that I felt when I began exploring this material, you know, low these many years ago, which is that, I cannot, as a modern person, easily understand this because I am not part of the divine cosmology that these people inhabited. And that involves both the sort of the the human culture component, which we've talked about, you know, the language, the the geographic location, the, the shared history, the community, the sense of where our culture in early America ends and another one begins. But you know, just as, dare I even say, more important is the fact that layered on top of this was their view of how they, as people and as a community, fit into eternity. Mm. And, you know, we live, even, even, even people today who are religious, we live in a world that is modern and secular and capitalist. Yeah. And and to as modern people to try to understand the motives behind these artworks, which are in many cases fundamentally of a religious nature, requires shedding our modern skin and going back into an early modern time. And I think that well, what you're saying about that you're requesting for something that was fundamentally spiritual, maybe not in the same sort of you. Know, German Protestant Christian way that, you know, the ancestors were thinking about it, but it, but it is a spiritual quest. And it sounds like through your artistic praxis, you're able to access some of that energy. Yeah, for sure. And even just to the point of thinking about Schwenkfeld and the inner light, you know, I was always really drawn to the inner light idea of the Quakers. And at the end of the day, again, it's, what were my ancestors and the people that came here? What were they searching for when they were creating this work? They were at the end of the day, looking for the same thing that I'm looking for. And that's something that is just of human nature. And despite the fact that we're grown, that we're living in such a different time, 
you know, they were still looking for the light in the darkness. Yeah. And, and that's the part where you can't romanticize the history of it. And they were going through, our challenges now are so different, but they were also in very dark times. And, and why was this so valuable? And why would they spend these hours and hours and hours learning this? It's very interesting. And, and I do think that finally sort of everything kind of came together and I feel like I cracked the code for myself, why it's important practice for me. Right. I think something else really important to mention too is um, a person named Lee Gandhi who studied outside of the culture in um, North Carolina. He created a book called um, A Strange Experience, and he would talk about hex science as painted prayers. And this was, he was doing this work like around the same time that we're speaking of, where other people were saying, deeply religious people in Pennsylvania were saying, no, this is just for nice. It's just designs. It's just fun to look at. It's just decorative. And he was saying, no, they're painted prayers. And I always think about that. And it goes along with your idea of the devotional that it's not really about the process of, oh, what paints and how, you know, like, how do you get your inspiration in my practice? It used to be until I got that visual language. And now what it's about is what is my intention? And then what's so important and interesting to think about is every single time we do a vending event, People are not coming up to us and saying, oh, well, I really like the way you did that bird. And that bird reminds me of this thing that makes it just an interesting decoration in my home. No, they are asking us every single time, what does this mean? What does this mean? And what does this mean? And what can you give me that will help me with protection and health and, you know, and things like this? So they are still looking for this. And I always tell people, when they ask me this, that it's really important for me to let them know that when I created this work, I had a set of intention for what it was going to mean for me making this art and what I was hoping it would mean for you. But it's very valuable. And you matter in this, friend. You're purchasing this art, right? And then you're going to have it in your home. And you're basically, it's a visual mantra every day. You're going to see it. It's very important. And you get to add to this. What does it mean for you when you look at it? And I think that's something that is a miss in a lot of scholarly uh, studies of this work is, is that interaction of when you see it daily, it's not just about the creation of it and what was the intention. It's also, how was it consumed and how did it, how did it live in the world? Where was it, where was it kept? Was it so sacred that it was kept with the Bibles inside their chest? Yes, it was. You know, it's a really interesting interesting concept, but it still carries through today. So yeah, we've changed so, so much, but really at the end of the day, like I think particularly fine art or I'm sorry, I apologize, particularly folk art and, and art that speaks to our cultural heritages. At the end of the day, they still want to gain the same comfort from it. Right. I mean, we we are still fundamentally human beings with the same need yeah. in our lives, the, the needs to feel a sense of belonging, the need to feel safe, the need to feel somehow connected to the broader universe, like our lives matter in some way. Yes. Um, and it may be expressed differently. You know, the cha- as you say, the challenges may be different, but um, fundamentally, yeah, we're all seeking that, that sense of comfort. And, you know, as you say, your art is able to, to help provide people with that. That's really a powerful way of summarizing Is it the, the, the potency of this art form. Yeah. So and where I had never, I had never done any artwork before Alex that had this kind of 
energy. It's just, it, it's, it's because it's so layered as yeah. we're, as we're discussing, there's so many layers to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's really profound. Hmm. So if a listener is interested in seeing some examples of your work, obviously the, you know, this podcast is an audio presentation. So probably listeners are very curious now what exactly, um, your, your artwork looks like, um, and maybe even are interested in thinking about acquiring some examples of your work. Can you give us a sense of where they should go uh, to learn more about your work, see examples of it, and also to learn more about your book? Sure. Um, so every, everybody can reach me, kind of the starting point would be my website, which is www.racheloderart.net, and that's R-A-C-H-E-L-Y-O-D-E-R art.net and there you'll find a, an array of my art different different time periods um it also has links to my podcast i do a podcast called big mama hex <laughs> which is a lot of fun and really also helps me through um the covid darkness um and then of course my shop is also linked there i sell through etsy i also sell a lot on social media and of course, at vending events, we just did the Cooktown Folk Fest. Um, we also do a great show called the Redding Guild Show, and that's in Cookstown as well. And we do the Bell Snickle Craft Show here in Boyertown, where we live. Um, so those are some ways to connect with me. And then I didn't even get to touch on this. Um, the actual MFA project that was created through this research is called Nick Snooks, and that's a word for a little rambunctious, usually child in um, Pensafanisch Deutsch. And it's a line of contemporary folk art designs on textiles that I created by hand using Linocut. So it has a hand-done element. And then within the um, capabilities of our modern technology, I was able to create repeat surface pattern designs with those. And I sell those through Spoonflower. So it's like a licensing thing where people can order fabric through Spoonflower and also other different products with these with these um, textiles on it. Because at the end of the day, I wanted to solve this problem. It all started really, Alex, with one little tea towel. My mom had bought the fabric from Lady Fingers in Ole, Pennsylvania in the 90s. And it was 150,000% kitsch, but I loved it. And I was on an exploration starting my MFA thesis program to figure out how I could get my hands on more of it. It had been totally ended in production, all of these old kitschy patterns that were often sold as well as fabric in bolts. Um, they had all gone away and I wanted to solve the problem of where did they go and where can we find an opportunity to create them again? So that's what led me to this. And my, my biggest takeaway was to create new work that's, that sort of, helps to fill that void, but that is authentic and ethically created uh, with all of these things in mind. Um, so I'm still on that journey and still creating um, different surface patterns and implore people to keep these things in mind as a consumer, because I know just around the time that this was being created, um, my MFA thesis, uh, Starbucks came out with a Pennsylvania uh, travel coffee mug and it was basically swiped Jacob Zook's Distelfink image, and it was very problematic and very poignant timing that I was in the middle of all of this. And I did implore some of my friends who, like myself, were very excited that, oh my gosh, we're being represented by Starbucks in Pennsylvania. It's like a Pennsylvania Dutch themed mug. But I did kind of softly 
you know, try to educate people that this is not really ethically done and, you know, to maybe support like folk artists that can now create these things as well. You know, all of the wonderful technology that we have in websites that we have, um, I have a Zazzle shop as well. Yeah. So, you know, you can find these things and do it in an ethically consumer way. Um, so the best way to reach me is my website. And I had a wonderful time talking with you today. So thank you so much for your time. This has been very, 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 very wonderful conversation, Alex. Well, I just so appreciate that you took the time to share all of these insights with me and with our listeners. This is, I mean, for me, totally fascinating, both <laughs> to you know hear, frankly, to, you know, in a self-surfing way, to hear how you responded to my work. Um, I love hearing about you, the you know, the art, the folk artist's perspective on all of these same issues that I've been thinking about over the years. It, it's it's really a rich conversation that I look forward to continuing. And I just I want to share two quick little follow up points um, before we actually close the episode. The first is for for this season of the podcast, which as you know I've titled Pathways in Pennsylvania German Studies. I um, you know frankly just kind of asked people who you know, friends I've made over, over the years um, to, to be on the podcast and to talk with me about the work that they're doing. And already I've, I've done two interviews now, three interviews for, for this season, have many more coming up. And already there's just this theme of, you know, a, a, dare I say a bit of a, of an avant-garde in Pennsylvania German studies across disciplines of people who, felt that sense of you know, separation, looking through a veil, um, having these questions about what to make of the material culture, of the material texts, and then doing that work of stepping through, learning what needs to be learned, and engaging with this material in new ways. And I think that that's, this is an idea that's going to touch a lot of the episodes in this season. So it, it was it's really fascinating for me to hear you um, describe your own experience in this way. Secondly, you know, the, the word that I'm leaving with from this is going to be in my mind now after our conversation is identity and this idea of how identity is constructed. What are the ingredients of identity? How do we actively create identity? What parts of our identity are, you know, essential in, in the sort of most basic meaning of that word? You know, what, what is the essence of who we are? How do we shape um, who we are based on the world around us. And I want to share with you, Rachel, a quote um, from a book that I, I went to get off of my bookshelf. I tiptoed away from my laptop um, uh, some time ago and, and pulled a book off the bookshelf. And it's something that I used in my work. And then um, I, I know that I quoted this book in a previous episode of the podcast some time ago. The book is called Ethnicity Without Groups. And it's by a sociologist named Rogers Brubacher. And I just want, I want to close the episode by reading um, some of his reflections on what ethnicity and identity are, because I think it gets at a lot of what we talked about. So bear with me. And I'm just going to, I'm going to share the words of Rogers Brubacher with you and with, with the podcast listeners. He writes, and I quote, ethnicity, race, and nationhood are fundamentally ways of perceiving, interpreting, and representing the social world. They are not things in the world, but perspectives on the world. These include ethnicized ways of seeing and ignoring, of construing and misconstruing, 
of inferring and misinferring, of remembering and forgetting. They include ethnically oriented frames, schemas, and narratives, and the situational cues, not least those provided by the media, that activate them. They include systems of classification, categorization, and identification, formal and informal, and they include the tacit, taken for granted, background knowledge embodied in persons and embedded in institutional routines and practices through which people recognize and experience objects, places, persons, actions, or situations as ethnically, racially, or nationally marked or meaningful. And I find those words to be so powerful in thinking about this idea that our identities are constructed by us, by other people, by the objects in our world, by history, by our communities. Um, and you know, to, to think, to look at art and text through that lens is just um, really, really, really powerful. So this gives me a lot to think about. And I just want to, again, thank you so much for giving me of your time today. And I will look forward to continuing the conversation sooner rather than later. Absolutely, Alex. And let me just say something real quick. Um, to your point, that's a beautiful quote. And I just want to say that, you know, with your enthusiasm and your commitment to this work, you absolutely have every right to be in our community standing and sitting next to us at the table as anyone else. So thank you for the work that you've done. And it's, it's invaluable. And it, it just, it, it just changes the landscape so much. So we really, really appreciate you and value you. So thank you for the work you're doing. It is my pleasure, and I can guarantee you that I will continue doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Max, good. Oh, I, I am honored and humbled by your words. Um, and yes, this is an interdisciplinary enterprise that um, is has yes. some exciting days ahead. Yes, indeed. Thanks for listening to Cloister Talk. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out Rachel's book, Pennsylvania Dutch Design, A History of Kitsch, Folk Art, and More, and view her art at her website and on social media. I'll be sure to link to uh, the website and her various social media accounts on my website, wordandwilderness.com slash cloistertalk. Of course, I hope you will also consider reading my book, The Word in the Wilderness, Popular Piety and the Manuscript Arts in Early Pennsylvania. To purchase a copy, just visit psupress.org, or you can also request it from your favorite local bookseller or library. Please note that Penn State Press is a nonprofit scholarly publisher and part of the Penn State University Libraries. Your purchase of the book supports the work of nonprofit peer reviewed academic publishing, a vital component of the United States information landscape in the 21st century. Please also check out the new Word in the Wilderness official study guide, available at wordinwilderness.com clubs, which can help structure your reading of the book and point you in the direction of further resources. On the next episode of Cloister Talk, we'll begin a special mini-series focused on a wonderful Pennsylvania German manuscript held at the William L. Clements Library of the University of Michigan. Not only will we take a deep dive into the Holstein family account book together and consider how this Codex manuscript connects to other varieties of Pennsylvania German artistry, but we'll learn more about the Clements Library and its fantastic work preserving American history and culture. 
Research and production of Season 4 of Cloister Talk was supported by the Jacob M. Price Digital Fellowship at the William L. Clemens Library, a rare book and manuscript library at the University of Michigan that specializes in print and manuscript materials on the history of North America and the Caribbean, with particular strengths in 18th and 19th century American history. Learn more at clements.umich.edu. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to continuing our conversation on the next episode of Cloister Talk.